Welcome back to The West London Witch. This episode details graphic crimes and sexual violence against women. Listener discretion is strongly advised. As Emma plunged her frozen hands into her moth-eaten wool coat, she clasped stiff fingers around her day's pay. A meager two pence. She only had half of what she needed to stay a night in the common lodgings house. The rain was coming down with such frozen veracity, she knew it would soon turn into sheets of gray sleet. The firmaments were heavy with a foreboding flood. This sort of weather did not make earning a few extra pennies easy. As the church bell sounded midnight, Emma knew she would be spending another cold, hungry, and inhospitable night on the street. With the final toll of the bell, the rain began to fall. Quickly, Emma darted for cover. Once you were wet, there was no drying off. Sickness befell those who slept in the rain. From underneath the canopy of the butchers, Emma scanned the street for a place of refuge. She would need to be quick, as the streetwalkers would all be searching for a dry place to pass the night. She needed a dark, covered corner or doorway, somewhere dry, slightly elevated, and a place where she wouldn't get moved along in the night. The doorway to an old townhouse caught her attention. It was dark and had a step covered by a small gable. Quickly, Emma pulled up her skirts and ran to the doorway, careful not to stand in puddles or let her skirts fall. She had holes in her leather boots, so naturally what was left of her socks was now soaked. But at least she was sorted for the night. Thank God for small miracles. As Emma curled up in a ball and nestled close to the splintered and flaky wood of the door, she tried to focus on the sound of the rain. She imagined it, washing away the filth and squalor of the street, visualizing it, sweeping away the rats and the lice, rinsing away the thick layer of grime covering her own frigid body, washing away the hurt, the pain, and the hopelessness of her own miserable existence. She had no tears to cry. It's not as though this was a new experience for her. She had slept rough hundreds of times before this, and this certainly wouldn't be her last. Each hour, as the bell rang out, Emma woke briefly from her restless slumber. One o'clock. Two o'clock. Three o'clock. But before the fourth hour could pass by, she was awoken by a soft shaking of her shoulder. She lifted her head to see a man standing over her. Assuming she was being asked to vacate her stoop, she began to plea for just one more hour of rest. But the man was gentle, quiet, and merely said, Miss, you shouldn't be out here in this weather. I've got no money, sir, and no credit to be had. Well, how about you come with me? The man began in a velvety voice. After half an hour... I assure you, you'll have enough for the lodging house. His hand dropped into his pocket, and Emma could hear the soft jingling of coins rattling against one another. One might say desperate times call for desperate measures, but for women in the East End of London in the 1800s, this was just day-to-day -day survival. With the opportunity for a night out of the rain, Emma stood 
took the gentleman's hand and followed him into a dark alley. After 30 minutes, she would have the contents of his pockets. But instead of pennies and shillings, she was left with a battered face, broken wrist, and a handful of counterfeit coins. She'd make a police report, of course, but this man came from the dark and descended back into the night. Like a ghost, he had taken from her what he wanted and left her broken and ravaged on the soiled ground. This wouldn't be Emma's last night on the street, or the last time she'd stumble down a back alley with a man and the promise of a few coins. This was her life, and the life of her peers and the other unfortunates whose only crime had been being born poor. This was Victorian London, and Emma was one of the lucky ones. It's Becca. For the past three years, the West London Witch team have been dedicated to bringing you the best supernatural stories at the highest studio quality. And by team, I mean me and my buddy Danny. We do this work totally for free because we love it. We're proud of our content and appreciate the wonderful interactions we get to have with storytellers and listeners just like yourself. If you're enjoying the West London Witch, maybe consider joining our Patreon. It's a way to further engage with us and show your support for two creatives. If you're in a position to spare enough each month for us to grab a cup of coffee in between edits or add to the piggy bank for a new microphone, we would love to see you in our Patreon community. But I know times are tough, so if you're not in a position to join Patreon right now, that's okay. We aren't going anywhere. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash the West London Witch. For as little as one pound, one dollar, one euro a month, you can gain full access to our coven, a space where we share behind the scenes stories, dive deeper into each episode, answer your questions, and have special little treats to thank you for sharing your love and kindness with your favorite little witch. Happy Christmas, and welcome to episode 63 of The West London Witch, a podcast where we share stories about those moments where we find ourselves very much not alone. For the past year, I have been scouring London town for an expert on Jack the Ripper to come onto the show and share a deep, fact-driven account of the case. I have called emailed, written, and social media stalked countless authors, tour guides, museums, and self-proclaimed ripperologists. Several times, I've come close to catching an interview, 
But much like the Ripper himself, the interviewee would disappear into the hustle and bustle of the old smoke, never to be heard from again. But since I am nothing if not tenacious, I persisted, and I was handsomely rewarded for my efforts. M.P. Priestley is a true crime author and an authority on the Jack the Ripper case. In his book, One Autumn in Whitechapel, Mick not only details the crimes with extreme accuracy and detail, but also presents a new suspect who, until now, has evaded less critical scrutiny. Today, we are digging into this notorious case with the respect, veracity, and attention it deserves. However, Mick tells the story like it is. Grisly, tragic, and at times, barbaric. So bring a pot of mulled wine to simmer. Get yourself a jam tart and prepare to be transported to the cold and brutal streets of Victorian London. I'm Rebecca Strazina, and this is The West London Witch, Episode 63, Re-Examining the Ripper. The Jack the Ripper murders took place in the east end of London in the Whitechapel area in 1888. And the Whitechapel area in 1888 was a particularly unpleasant place in which to live. Generations of destitution, poverty, and unemployment had turned large parts of the area into slum ghettos. And numerous people had been forced out onto the streets. If you weren't fortunate enough to have your own house or your own room to stay in, you typically stayed on a night-by-night basis in a lodging house, which would basically be seen as a homeless hostel today, and the conditions inside the lodging house were uh, particularly unpleasant. There were two types of lodging houses available for the impoverished and desperate to rent on a nightly basis, and both were dire and horrendous, to say the least. There was the common lodging house, which was essentially a large room filled with coffin-like beds packed tightly next to one another. For four pence, or six pounds 41 in today's money, you could rent out one of these wooden casket cots for the night. However, if you had a little more money in your budget, you could rent out an equally dismal, but perhaps less Count Dracula-like, furnished lodging house. The furnished lodging house was more if it was not just yourself, but you and your family, perhaps. It would be a room in a house that was quote-unquote furnished, but the furnishings were particularly dire. It would be simply a perhaps a rickety old bed and a broken table and chair, and that would be about it. If you were in the furnished lodging house as well, you didn't necessarily have the whole place to yourself either. Some places would rent different parts of the room. You might have a stranger sleeping in the corner there or perhaps under the bed even. Some places would operate a relay system on the bed where your nightly rent would actually only pay for shelter for part of the day. So perhaps you might have the bed between midnight and eight in the morning, but then you have to get out because somebody else is coming in from eight in the morning till four in the afternoon. Then they have to get out because somebody else is there from four till midnight, and then it's your turn finally again. These lodging houses were not only grim, depressing, highly unsanitary, and full of vermin, disease, bedbugs, and lice, but they also were typically without running water, flushing toilets, or central heating. The only restroom facilities would be either a pit dug into the ground in the basement or an outhouse out at the back of the property. 
With the amount of people coming in and out of the lodging houses, you can only imagine the state and the smell of these facilities. But it did keep you off the streets, which was indeed uh, the most important thing, because if you weren't freezing to death on the cobblestones of Whitechapel at the time, any number of uh, shady characters would be stalking the streets, particularly at nighttime. It was an extremely high crime area, driven by the poverty situation. And once we got to 1888 and random attacks of women started in the street, it became very apparent that there was now a new danger stalking the streets of Whitechapel by nighttime. With all of this depravity, poverty, and rampant hardship, it's no surprise that life was not only rough, but also very dangerous, particularly if you were ill, elderly, a child, or a woman. So as we approached the autumn of 1888, a number of instances, a number of uh, events had taken place in the area in which women were randomly attacked by a stranger in the street. As we got towards that autumn, a woman named Georgina Green had complained to police that she'd been attacked by a knife-wielding stranger in the streets of Whitechapel in the middle of the night, who, as she was walking through the streets in the dark, had appeared from nowhere and stabbed her in the forehead uh, before taking off running. Whoever that was, he was uh, never actually found. There was a lady called Malvina Haynes was actually attacked and um, brutally injured in a railway arch on the corner of uh, Cable Street and Lehman Street. But when she was taken to the hospital uh, with head injuries and it appeared a, a knife injury to her scalp, she said that she was completely unable to remember what had happened uh, and was unable to give any description or anything of who might actually have done it. When we got to uh, the 7th of August, 1888, though, the murders then uh, began. And they began with the murder of a lady named Martha Tabram. Martha Tabram was 39 years old when she was found brutally stabbed to death at 4.50 a.m. on the first floor landing of the George Yard Building, a disgusting furnished lodging house in the heart of Whitechapel. She was found uh, on the first floor landing, stabbed 39 times, with nine stabs to her throat, nine in between the legs, a number of stabs to her chest that were reported as being in an almost circular fashion. Whoever the killer was, he left it posed on the landing, with her head to the side, her eyes wide open, her legs wide apart, her clothes pulled up chest high uh, to expose her. Her knickers were missing, which would be um, a recurring theme as we went on through the case. The killer had also... Uh, cut away part of the dress that she was wearing and taken it from the crime scene with him. Although crime abounded in the East End, the savage slaying of Martha Tambrin was unusual. Drunken violence, theft, and property crimes were far more common than murder, especially a murder that appeared to be sexually motivated. The case was reported in the newspapers, but only lightly, and life in the East End continued as normal. On the 31st of August, 1888, we then had the murder of Marianne Nichols on Bucks Row, which is now called Derwood Street uh, in Whitechapel, directly behind the tube station. She was found lying on Bucks Row at 3.40 that morning by a man named Charles Cross, who would actually appear to have been Charles Lechmere. He would seem to have lied about his uh, name and address for whatever reason. But she was found at 3.40 in the morning, lying in the gateway into a stables yard, like Martha Tapram, she was found lying on her back with her legs wide apart. Her clothes pulled up chest high, her knickers were missing, but this time her throat had been cut violently in two places. She'd been stabbed twice in the groin, 
and there were a number of mutilation knife injuries to her abdomen uh, that had actually exposed her intestines through the wounds. Three weeks after the initial killing of Martha Tambrin, and only eight days after Marianne Nichols was found slaughtered on the street, came the tragic night of September 8th, 1888. Annie Chapman was found murdered in the rear yard of number 29 Hanbury Street in the Spitalfields area of Whitechapel, only around a, a five-minute walk from the murder scene on Bucks Row. Whoever the killer was this time, he had actually ended through the front door with Annie Chapman, passed through the hallway of the house. There were 17 people in the house at the time, in eight separate rooms, but it would seem that the killer couldn't possibly have known that. Then arrived into the backyard at around 5.30 in the morning where the murder took place. She was discovered around half an hour-ish, give or take, after the murder took place by a man named John Davis, who lived on the top floor. And had been coming after getting up for work, he'd headed down the stairs of the building and had been heading out into the backyard to use the only toilet and tap that actually stood there. She was found in the yard uh, on her back with her legs wide apart, her knickers missing, her clothes pulled up chest high. Her throat had been cut violently. Uh, She was lying on her back with her head to the side, her eyes wide open, one hand placed across her chest, Blood from a throat injury, uh, it would appear, had been smeared across her thighs. Her intestines this time, though, had actually been pulled from inside her. There'd been a, a particularly savage mutilation wound that ran from the sternum all the way down to in between her legs. The killer would have uh, appeared to have pulled out three feet of her small intestine and, according to witness reports, would seem to have thrown it into her face that had then fell, fallen across her right shoulder. But she was lying in much the same way as Annie Chapman and Martha Tabram had been. This was a particularly brazen and risky killing. Not only was the lodging house full of potential witnesses, but after the killer was done with the extensive mutilation of poor Annie, he then had to walk back through the boarding house in order to leave the property. It is obvious that the killer was growing in confidence. By this point in the case, uh, this was now a newspaper sensation and the people of Whitechapel were vividly aware that somebody seemed to be murdering the street walkers in the middle of the night. But another three weeks then passed after that offence until Saturday the 30th of September 1888 when there was a double murder took place. There was two separate murders, uh, two totally separate incidents. The first murder was seen to have taken place at some time between 12.45 and 1 o'clock in the morning in Dutfield's yard. And it was a murder of a lady named Elizabeth Stride who was 44 years old. And she was found lying at the side of the Working Men's International Educational Society, which is a a largely Jewish working men's club. The club was still open at the time, and she was found murdered right beside the uh, the side door of the club. As the murder took place, the killer and Elizabeth Stride would have been able to hear people on the other side of the door drinking beers and playing piano and singing songs. It was an incredibly dangerous, high-risk place to do a murder. But she was found lying on her back in a similar position as to Annie Chapman and Mary Ann Nichols and Martha Tapram, on her back with her head to the side, her eyes wide open, a hand across her chest. Her, he'd removed a hat from her head and placed it on the ground behind her, scattered a packet of breath mints around her, and then actually placed what remained of the packet into her hand. He'd smeared the blood from a throat injury across her hand and her forearm, and then taken off running. Elizabeth's body was found at a minute past one. However, As the police rushed to investigate Elizabeth's murder, the killer was on his way to commit another. 
and by around about 1.40 in the morning had made his way to Mitre Square, which is a 12-minute walk uh, directly west of the scene on Burner Street. And it was there at 1.44 that morning, PC Edward Watkins of the city police would discover the body of Catherine Eddowes, who was lying in the south corner of the square, heavily mutilated on her back with her head to the side, her eyes wide open, both hands by her side, which had been the case on um, Durwood Street, Bucks Row, uh, with Mary Ann Nichols. But this would never happen again. The, the hand was always placed across the chest. She was found on her back, both hands by her sides, her legs wide apart, and knickers missing. Her clothes pulled up chest high to expose her. Like Annie Chapman, her intestines had actually been pulled from inside her and uh, were across the right shoulder. He'd also actually cut out her left kidney in her entire womb and actually taken them from the scene with him. At that particular crime scene, though, her face had also been heavily mutilated with a number of uh, stab and slash wounds. The right, the bottom part of her right ear was missing. Both sets of her eyelids were cut through. The front part of her nose was missing. The killer had actually stabbed her at the bridge of the nose and actually opened up an injury that came all the way through her face until it hit her jawbone. Uh, a section of an apron she'd been wearing, almost half of it, it was reported, had been cut with a clean cut, it was said, and had actually been taken from the scene as well. It might appear that the killer had actually taken that with him uh, to wrap the kidney and the womb in uh, because it was later discovered uh, only a, a couple of minutes run away, certainly, on Goulson Street, lying in the doorway of 108 to 119 Wentworth Dwellings, which is another horrible lodging house largely uh, lived in by Jewish tenants at the time. The missing part of her apron was discovered at 2.55 that morning by a PC Alfred Long, an hour and 10 minutes after the murder of Catherine Eddowes was discovered, around two hours uh, since somebody was killing Elizabeth Stride. It was found dumped in the doorway. It was described as being uh, smeared over with feculent matter, which had also been the description given to Catherine Eddowes lying in Mitre Square. They said her intestines and her clothing had been covered with feculent matter. But the killer also at that crime scene had actually removed a two and a half foot section of her colon and placed it on the ground beside her in between her left arm and her body, which might explain where the matter had indeed come from. So Catherine Eddowes' missing apron cutting was found discarded in the doorway to the lodging house, covered in feces, and one corner was reported to be wet with blood. Sprawled on the wall next to the missing apron appeared a very odd and mysterious piece of graffiti. On the black bricks in white chalk, they said the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing, which doesn't quite seem to entirely make sense. There was no photograph ever taken of it. Depending on which policeman was reporting it, it seems to have been written slightly differently. It was either the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing, the Jews are not the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Some people said that the graffiti was written, uh, the word Jews was spelled J-U-W-E-S, uh, which is the account that seems to have gone into history. Other police at the area, uh, in the area at the time, said actually said J-E-W-E-S. There was another policeman said it just said J-E-W-S and there was nothing wrong with it, but it was actually washed off the wall and into history. Uh, by the Metropolitan Police on the orders of Commissioner Charles Warren, who had turned up at the scene and was concerned that with it being now very advanced in the early hours, a number of the Jewish residents in the area were actually setting up the market stalls in the area at the time. He was convinced that the building would be wrecked when people saw it with such uh, rampant anti-Semitism in the area at the time, and so it was washed off the wall uh, and into history with nobody seeing it. There is no evidence either way that the killer did or did not write on the wall. 
It could have been totally unrelated graffiti written before the apron ever appeared. It could have been an attempt to frame someone in the Jewish community. Or it could just be a red herring. We will never truly know. However, that missing piece of Catherine Edda's apron laying in the doorway was the only time the Ripper would leave a direct piece of evidence to be found. Nobody disputes that that was the missing part of an apron taken from the square. Uh, it was absolutely a clue left by the killer. Worth remembering, though, that he'd also taken part of Martha Tapram's dress back on the 7th of August, 1888, so it would appear to be the second time he'd done that. After the night of the double murder, there were six quiet, ripper-free weeks. However, on the morning of November 9th, 1888, the body of 25-year-old Mary Jane Kelly would be discovered. She was found murdered inside her lodging room at number 13 Miller's Court on the bed inside the room, posed similarly uh, to how the other victim had been, particularly Annie Chapman. She was lying on her back with her head turned to the left, her eyes wide open, one hand placed across her chest, her legs wide apart. Any underwear she might have been wearing was missing, as had been the case uh, at the other crime scenes. But the murder of Mary Kelly showed a, a severely escalated level of violence. She was extremely heavily mutilated. It would appear that the killer at that particular crime scene had spent perhaps two hours at the crime scene whereas he spent maybe five minutes or less at the other ones. But she was found extremely heavily mutilated. Both uh, thighs had actually been denuded, it was said. The flesh and the muscles actually stripped from the thighs all the way down to such an extent that the thigh bones were actually visible. Everything between her legs was missing. Uh, both of her breasts had been removed. Uh, her intestines had been pulled from inside her and placed down the right side of the body. Half the right lung lay under the right arm, the spleen lay under the left arm. Both of her kidneys and her uterus were actually placed underneath the left side of her head. Her face had been heavily mutilated uh, to such a degree where the killer had essentially removed most of her face, her forehead uh, was still there, but that's about it. Chief Inspector Henry Moore of the Metropolitan Police was assigned to the case, and he reported that upon arriving at the crime scene, organs from inside a body and strips of flesh, it was reported, were actually found hanging from nails in the wall and had been draped over the back of the chairs. The murder of Mary Jane Kelly was no doubt the most graphic, horrifying, and violent of all the Jack the Ripper murders. Perhaps it was the time, seclusion, and relative privacy that allowed the Ripper to really lash out. However, after the November 9th massacre of Mary Jane Kelly, the killings did stop. Maybe the killer was fearful of the mass media attention the killings had garnered and felt like he needed to let things cool down for a bit. Uh, everybody by this point was talking of nothing else. The, the pressure was very much on to catch him. But eight months would then go by without any further offences. Whatever he was doing, he, he was laying low. Then on the 17th of July, 1889, 39-year-old Alice McKenzie was found murdered and mutilated in Castle Alley, which is now called Old Castle Street. It's the street directly behind the Goulson Street doorway where the missing part of Catherine Edwards' apron was found. But she was found around one o'clock in the morning, lying on her back with her head to the side, her eyes wide open, her legs wide apart, her knickers missing, one hand placed across her chest. She'd had her throat cut violently uh, in two places, but she was found lying beneath a, a, a cart there. Uh, yes, and that absolutely was attributed uh, to Jack the Ripper at the time. After that, he then lays low for almost a year and a half because it wasn't until 
the 13th of February, 1891, that the next murder took place. So this would be the eighth murder by this point and absolutely was attributed to the killer at the time. And it was a murder of 26-year-old Francis Coles. Young Francis Coles was found near to death under a railway arch in Swallow Gardens, an area very close to the infamous Tower of London. When Frances Coles was found, she was actually found uh, by a PC, Ernest Thompson of the Metropolitan Police, who was uh, actually performing his first nighttime beat duty at the time. And he arrived at Swallow Gardens and there was no lighting in the railway arch. It was completely dark. He arrived in the archway carrying his bullseye lantern. And as he approached roughly the middle of the archway, he then realized that there was a figure lying on the floor. And it was Frances Coles, but she was still alive at the time with her throat cut deeply. There was a quote, uh, with each expiring breath, the blood gushed from a throat wound or something grim like that. And they said she was, it would appear that she was trying to say something and her lips were moving, her eyes were wide open. She had one hand placed across her chest as had been the case at the other crime scenes. Her hat had been removed from her head and placed on the ground behind her as had been the case uh, with uh, Elizabeth Stride. But as he discovered the body there, PC Thompson said he distinctly heard the sound of footsteps and it was somebody fleeing at the other end of the archway. This is hands down the closest the Ripper ever came to being captured. Due to police protocol at the time, PC Thompson couldn't chase after the killer as Francis was still alive. PC Thompson tried in vain to help Miss Coles as the killer disappeared into the night. She died in the railway arch and her killer was never found. Whoever that was, that has to be the killer. And whoever uh, the killer was, he would appear to have ran out at the end of the archway. It was said that he turned right towards Mansell Street and was gone. And with that, that would seem to be the end of the Jack the Ripper murders. There were no uh, similar offences which seemed to have taken place in the area after that time. It's completely plausible that the killer could have committed further offences after that that simply weren't attributed to him. But after the murder of Francis Coles, that would seem to bring an end to the Whitechapel murders case. But the police at the time did indeed say that all of the murders from that of Martha Tabram on the 7th of August, 1888, up to the murder of Francis Coles on the 13th of February, 1891, were all considered to be, uh, they were all considered to be victims of the same man. If you were to look on a map, all of these killings happened within a few hundred meters of each other. It is clear to see that the Ripper must have been a local man. With them all being so close by, he lives somewhere nearby. He would appear he commits the offence, runs like hell. And with the exception of the murder of Francis Coles, by the time the body was discovered, he was probably already back in the house or somewhere extremely close by. So who was the Ripper? Well, there are endless theories and speculation on the suspect himself. But let's start at a more general level. What was going on in his mind? Who was he looking for? And why did he commit these terrible crimes in the first place? People often say, uh, oh, he must have been angry or he hated women or something like that. In a, in a modern case, we say he's a sexually motivated offender. So if, if you got murdered by Jack the Ripper, he didn't know you personally. He would appear to have only met you a couple of minutes before. He, he's stalking the streets, looking for people who fit all, all of the victims fit a very similar description as well. They're all give or take about the same height, about the same age. They might have been similar in character if you'd met them. Uh, they were all dressed in black at the time the murders took place. He meets his victims by chance randomly in the street. 
but he waits until somebody fitting that particular description comes along. Uh, he has a very well-rehearsed sexual fantasy in his head that he seeks to act out. And in order for him to gain his psychological gratification from doing that, it requires a certain type of victim fitting a certain description. With variations in the murders, we see from the first one to the last one, there are indeed some uh, notably more violent than the other ones. And yes, he feels the need to act that out and to, to keep gaining his satisfaction from committing these offences. The actual, the, the stabbing and the, the cutting and the mutilating in a modern case would be referred to as peakerism. And peakerism is the sexual desire to penetrate the skin. So you'd think that if you had murdered somebody, you think you would run, the police are going to come, you know, somebody might see you, whatever, you might get caught and head off to the hangman. But he doesn't. When he commits the murder, he stays at the scene for five minutes or up to two hours after the murder uh, of Mary Kelly. But he once the murder is committed, that then allows him to act out his sexual fantasies. It's the cutting and the stabbing and the mutilating and the pulling out your intestines and this kind of thing. This, this is the part that excites him. So depending on his frame of mind and how comfortable he is with the crime scene and this kind of thing, he may feel the need to do more of this than he did last time in order to gain his satisfaction. So yes, you do see as the case goes on, some of the murders quite a lot worse than the other ones, if you, uh, for want of a better term. In a modern case, they would call that an escalating level of violence. There is much contention and debate about whether Jack the Ripper targeted sex workers and if these women were in fact sex workers at all. It wasn't really about seeking out sex workers specifically, but rather any woman on the street at night who fit his desires. Some of these women had engaged in sex work from time to time to make ends meet, and some never had. But Jack the Ripper didn't care about their profession but rather his accessibility to these vulnerable women. But with regards to the killer actually uh, targeting women because they were prostitutes, no, he, he might, because he's a sexually motivated offender, if you're a prostitute standing on the street corner, you might have caught his attention anyway because this guy has an out-of-control sex drive and he will know where the prostitutes are and what they get up to. This is something he will take an interest in anyway. But he's not targeting the women because they're prostitutes or because he hates prostitutes or anything like this, like people sometimes say. He's targeting these people because it's easy for him. He is a he's a sexually motivated offender who wants to be able to commit these offenses. And the fact that there is somebody here on the street who fits his description, who will go anywhere with him and will take him of her own free will to a secluded spot where nobody's going to see them there. If he just tells her he's going to, this makes it very easy for him to commit the offense. We have all heard hundreds of conspiracy theories about the Ripper. It was a wealthy Victorian surgeon, or maybe Prince Victor Albert, son of Queen Victoria. No, 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 it was Joseph Barnett, Mary Jane Kelly's boyfriend. Perhaps it was the wealthy old Wickhamist, Montague John Druitt, or the philandering Liverpudlian James Maybrick. Perhaps he was a Freemason, or even the Illuminati. But all of that is just speculation, and the police at the time had another, far more probable idea of who the killer was. All of those theories are nonsense, and uh, nobody ever said that at the time. So uh, the police at the time uh, said whoever the killer was, he was a local man in the immediate area, 
He would sit drinking in the local pubs. He would look and act like anybody else. All sorts of people would have known him and met him and spoke to him. Uh, there were quite a lot of people actually saw Jack the Ripper as well. People always think that nobody saw him. There were quite a number of people that saw him. There were, I found four women, for example, who got attacked but got away. There were other uh, witnesses who saw the killer uh, speaking to a victim moments before the murder took place. The police at the time said, whoever it was, it was a man with a knife. They said absolutely anybody could have done it. They said uh, it had to be a man of decent physical strength who has uh, a knife with a strong blade and a strong handle because it doesn't seem to snap or give way as he's doing these things to you. But yes, they believe it was a local man living in the area. He would drink in the pubs. On All of the murders then take place in the hours after the pubs have closed. In a modern case as well, uh, we know that the majority of these sorts of murders are often committed when the killer's been uh, drinking alcohol or doing drugs which um, is shown by the way the killer commits his offences as well. Imagine if you were the sort of person who just enjoys doing murders and you don't feel bad about it, and that's one thing. But I would expect you to put great effort into planning how you're not going to get caught. The indifference he seems to have towards his own safety as he's committing these offences in a modern case would imply that he's either mentally ill, which you think would be a given, but... Ted Bundy is legally sane and sensible. He's just not very nice. Or he's drunk or he's on drugs. He's not drunk like he's wobbling around and throwing up on the floor, but he's, he's got a buzz going because he seems indifferent to the danger he's putting himself in. Richard Ramirez said he used to drink vodka and smoke a crack pipe in the car when he was driving around looking for victims. And after, say, after half an hour of this, now he's not scared of you. He's going to come in the window and he's going to get you. And Jack the Ripper is exactly the same. After all of the theories comes another famous aspect of the case, the Ripper letters. After the murder of Annie Chapman, there were a number of uh, letters started arriving to the police and to the uh, to newspapers and eventually to, to private individuals and homes and everything. But the first one that was sent that has been currently, uh, kind of largely forgotten uh, to history, there was a, a letter sent anonymously to Sir Charles Warren, who was the chief of the Metropolitan Police, and it said, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, Dear Sir, uh, I am in misery with nightmare. I am the one that committed these murders. And he'd, um, he'd drawn a bunch of images all across the letter. Uh, but like, like real childish stick man kind of drawings. And there was one, it was the outline of, of a knife. And it said, photo of knife. And then there was a coffin on the thing. And it said something to the effect of, this is the knife that I put all those women to sleep with. And it was a taunting, threatening, intimidating letter that was sent to the chief of police. Everybody seems to have forgotten about that, though, because two days after that, there was then a letter was allegedly sent uh, to the central news office. And there was a man named Thomas Bulling claimed it had been sent to him. He was the boss at the newspaper office. Uh, and the letter said, Dear boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. Blah, blah, blah. And it, he, he was down on whores and he shan't quit ripping them until he does get buckled. It was written in red ink uh, and the, the killer... The killer, the person who wrote the letter, was claiming to be the killer and claimed that he'd, he'd wanted to write the letter in blood, but it had gone thick like glue over the last job, which is presumably Annie Chapman. So he'd use red ink. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. Uh, keep this letter back until I do a bit more work and then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp. I want to get back to work right away if I can. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name, is what it said. And when that was printed in the newspaper, that was like a super viral sensation of its time. Like overnight, they were selling 
quadruple the copies of the newspaper that there were the day before. The police said that that was such a big deal when that hit the newspaper. They said that writing Jack the Ripper letters became a national pastime. <laughs> and they said every, there were literally dozens of them a day turning up to police stations, to newspapers from all over the country, from all, all in different handwriting. But I think that the, the letters are largely seen to almost certainly be a hoax. Just because the Ripper has never been found does not mean that Mick does not have his own theory as to who it could be. Through his extensive research, Mick has come upon one man who really could fit the bill. My suspect is a man named Albert Backett, B-A-C-H-E-R-T. Uh, nobody's ever suggested him before. His parents were German. Uh, he was born and raised in Whitechapel. He's the right age. He fits the right description. He's got a criminal record for all the things you'd expect a serial killer to have today. He was constantly injecting himself into the investigation. He told the police that he'd met the killer and spoken to him. He told the police that the killer was writing letters to his house to threaten him and warn him of murders. He said that the killer was writing graffiti on the wall of his house. He then turned up completely uninvited to the inquest of Francis Coles at the Working Lads Institute on Whitechapel Road, demanding to be allowed onto the jury, just as the jury were about to be taken to view a body in the mortuary, and threw such a big fit when they wouldn't let him that the coroner told him if he didn't sit down and behave himself, he was going to have the police remove him from the building. I think he just wanted to see that body in the mortuary, but he worked uh, as an engraver, which is interesting. It's because I found four women in the area uh, who all got attacked, but got away, like we uh, mentioned briefly before, and they all had the, the same sort of story. You were sleeping in the doorway at four in the morning in the Whitechapel Spitalfields area when you'd met this guy who, after brief conversation, said, well, you got no money and nowhere to go. Have you? Well, check this out. And he would pull out what appeared to be these half-crown or half-sovereign coins that were extremely valuable, like two of those would have paid you rent for a month in the slums. Nobody's walking around with pockets of these. But he went, well, you can have these if you want to earn them. Wink, wink. And you're gone, yeah, okay then. Sit so down the alley where you'd gone into that dark secluded spot. And once you were there, he'd flipped, slugged you in the face, tripped you up, hold the blade, tried to strangle you, but you'd struggled and screamed and whatever and scared him away. And then when he'd gone, he realized these coins were bogus. Uh, when Emily Walter was attacked on Hanbury Street, who I mentioned earlier on, she said it was actually two uh, polished brass medals he'd given her. Uh, there was another case where it was a lady who'd been giving a farthing coin that had been polished super brightly, it was said, and then crimped and machined around the edges to appear like they were half crowns, half sovereigns when they weren't. Uh, this was a big deal at the time. Like the Met and City Police both had teams of detectives uh, specifically looking for men who were ripping off the women with uh, fake coins. This was seen, it's kind of been forgotten about now, but it's in all the original police files. Albert Backett, as a copper plate engraver, uh, would have had all the tools and the knowledge uh, to do that in the house. Like I couldn't sit here and carve a one pound into a two. He totally could have done that. Then in 1889, they actually took him to court and charged him on two separate counts of passing counterfeit coins exactly like that in a bunch of pubs uh, throughout East London and the East End. I'm open-minded if you come up with some legendary evidence, but I personally absolutely think it's him. Why do you think that after 135 years, we still don't have a definitive answer to this case? It's like in, uh, in 2000 and uh, 19, I seem to remember, uh, there were one in three murders uh, went unsolved. I think it was one in three and a half in the UK and one in three in the States. People seem to have this idea that, oh, you'll, you'll catch them now. And not necessarily, and certainly back in Victorian times before the, the DNA and the fingerprints and the uh, uh, and whatever. If you're Jack the Ripper and you 
you walk down the road there and you murder somebody and I didn't see you do that. Then you run home in the dark and I didn't see you do that. Then you get home, you change your clothes, you throw your knife away, you keep your mouth shut and you didn't even know who that was. Even today, that'd be real difficult to prove that was you if you were to Google uncaught serial killer. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of them. To this modern day, there are guys walking around right now that, with DNA and fingerprints and cameras and whatever. Uh, Jack the Ripper uh, gets away with it through luck. Before any of these women ever fell victim to Jack the Ripper, it's important to remember that they had already been failed by society. These women all suffered grisly, horrendous deaths, but their lives had been fraught with pain, struggle, strife, severe poverty, and inconceivable hardship. These poor women were victims in more ways than one. They deserved better lives, safer living conditions, and reliable work. The East End was the perfect environment for these crimes to occur in. And one of the reasons this case lives on today is because it is so counter to the Victorian sensibilities and image the time period usually conjures up. Underneath the whiteness of petticoats, tea parties, and family values lived the dark underbelly of the lower working class. It is highly unlikely that we will ever know for definitive certainty who committed the crimes that began in autumn 1888. But when we think back to this case, let's not just focus on the killer or his victims, but rather the world that these hideous crimes take place in and make an effort never to return to it. I'd like to say a huge thank you to Mick for sharing his wealth of knowledge with us today. I'm so glad that my quest for a ripperologist led me to you. If you're looking for a fascinating read this holiday season, check out One Autumn in Whitechapel by M.P. Priestley or Mick's new book, Active Shooter, The American Mass Murder Phenomenon. Or if you need to stretch your legs in the new year, you can always join Mick on one of his Jack the Ripper tours through Whitechapel. You can find the tour online at The Jack the Ripper Tour with Ripper Vision. Make sure you come and follow the West London Witch on Instagram and Facebook to see a trove of photos from this case, graciously supplied by Mick. For our Patreon members, there is an additional episode where Mick and I dive deeper into the lives of the women and the endless conspiracies that color this case. If you're not a Patreon member, why not treat yourself to a Christmas present and come join us? I'd love to see more friends in our little coven. But lastly, before I let you all go, I just want to say thank you to all of our amazing listeners for your support in 2023. This has been such a special year for the podcast, and I feel so very blessed to be able to share these stories with you all. I hope you all have a magical holiday season. And I wish you nothing but love, joy, and adventure as we embark upon 2024. From all of us here at the West London Witch, Merry Meet, Merry Part, and a very Merry Christmas. The West London Witch is created by me, Rebecca Strazina. Our sound designer and production magician is the incredible Danny Cross. 
Our theme music was bespokely written and performed by the wickedly talented Kyle Hall. Our cover art is the beautiful collaboration between Lizzie Wilson and Jake Bowser. Special thanks to Miss Sinead Bowers, our quality control and biggest cheerleader. And thank you to you, all of our listeners all over the world. These are your stories. Thank you for sharing them with us.